Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Just want to make sure people are here. Turn on your video if you would. I'd appreciate it. Then I can scroll through and make eye contact with you, even though you don't know I am. So this afternoon, hearing okay, sound okay? Good, okay. So this afternoon, um, the topic of the talk is transforming suffering into happiness. Sound good? And I wanted to explain how that's precisely what we're doing here in our practice. This, you want on mute? Let's see. You want on mute? Who should be on mute? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this morning, I shared with you instructions about Vedana, Remember that pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality of experience. The second foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourses on mindfulness. <clears throat> and as I said, just a very brief review, every moment has one of those three valences. <clears throat> and how we respond to the fact of this moment is determining what we're creating for ourselves, suffering or happiness. If we are grasping at the pleasant, attachment, pushing away the unpleasant, aversion, or spacing out on the neutral, or to some extent not seeing clearly enough so that we don't identify with experience and we are confused in that way, what's called ignorance or delusion, we are sowing the seeds in that moment and in future moments as we practice the, those responses for suffering. The big three, the three poisons, as they're sometimes called, greed, hatred, delusion, or synonymously, attachment, aversion, 
ignorance. Those are what the Buddha said are the roots of all suffering. Each of those is a kind of um, not just confused mind, but contracted mind. <clears throat> so every moment you respond that way, you're actually planting the seeds, you're sowing the seeds for suffering in this moment and as you practice that habit uh, for future moments too. And those forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, you can see how prevalent they are in this world. <clears throat> Every moment that you respond differently and simply, for instance, know the Vedna as pleasant without grasping, but simply allowing it to be, enjoying it, as I said, don't miss it, appreciating the moment as it is, but knowing that it passes, and so not getting caught up in that grasping, or the unpleasant moment, instead of recoiling in aversion, but rather seeing it, attending however you need to, to take care of things, but not getting into a reactive response of contraction, or in the neutral moment, instead of spacing out or getting confused or being deluded, um, we see things clearly and we have some clarity. We are sowing the seeds for what the Buddha talked of as the source of happiness, of well-being, non-greed, non-grasping, non-hatred or non-aversion, and non-delusion or clarity, wisdom. So it's right there in every moment that we have that comes to us, we have a choice how to respond. And when you realize that in your response, you're planting seeds for either suffering, if you're not awake and clear and just respond, react habitually as most of us usually do, or wakeful and have a more skillful response for happiness, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Every moment we have a choice. So I wanted to talk about each of those pairs and realizing that what we're doing on the cushion has very profound effects for how it works in our life. So first, greed or non-greed. Okay. Non-greed, the more positive expression of non-greed is the capacity to let go and even the fuller expression of non-greed, generosity. Generosity is the, is the expression of letting go 
the wisdom that doesn't hold on, but also feels connected. And so it's really uh, important to see as much as we, we think that, um, that the, as most people think, the game is about, well, what's in it for me? What can I get for me? Actually, the, the profound understanding is the shift that says, oh, what do I have to offer? What can I contribute? One of my favorite lines in um, Shanti Deva's, it is my favorite line in Shanti Deva's Bodhisattva's Guide to the Way of Life, uh, which is like the Dalai Lama's Bible, so to speak, uh, where Shanti Deva says, the, the miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. We are beyond that contracted poverty mentality. Will there be enough for me? What's in it for me? To, oh, what do I have to give? That simple shift of relationship into a heart of generosity is a source of tremendous well-being and joy and happiness. <clears throat> so I wanted to talk a bit about this first pair, particularly around generosity and how it affects us both in the moment and, uh, and in our life. I used the example this morning of the Buddha when I was talking about uh, being with the wholesome. He says, Notice in the middle of a generous act, oh, I'm being generous now. Notice how good that feels. Notice the, uh, the, the wholesome quality of that impulse moving through you and expressing itself. And it's an outward flow. It feels so much better when you take a really good look at it. It, it feels so much better to contribute than to uh, make sure I have enough. And I'm all in favor of making sure you have enough. But at some point when you have enough, then it's, oh, what can I offer? Mm. The um, uh, father of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, he wrote this book called Authentic Happiness. And he said that authentic happiness of all the, 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 the studies that he does, that he's done, the real happiness comes from identifying what our gifts are that life has given us and then offering them in a spirit of contribution. That's where the real happiness comes from after doing years and years of research and interviewing hundreds and thousands of people. Uh, this is the real happiness. <clears throat> and at this particular time, where not just the, the culture is, is saying, oh, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're living under the, the um, uh, the curse of the word more. At this particular time, 
we are called on more than ever to express our generosity and our goodness. And it feels really good. Sometimes uh, people um, think of the, the meditative life as something that seems very insular and selfish or self-indulgent. And I want to read to you um, a passage from an inspiring Theravadan teacher, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the, the main translator of all of the Pali Canon. You might have seen thick books, the middle-length discourses and the uh, connected discourses and the numerical discourses. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is the translator of all of those references. He's this amazing scholar. But he's also become a real activist in, uh, in the last decades. Very inspiring man. And he wrote this book, uh, wrote this essay. He's written a number of things, but this one essay, I just want to read to you an excerpt lest you think that this is a kind of self-indulgent exercise or a friend of yours says, what are you doing just sitting around doing nothing? Are you, let's get out there and be productive. This is what he says. This is from his essay and you can Google it. It's right there online. It's called A Challenge to Buddhists by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll put the link in on your, the resources. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. He goes on to say that the challenge facing us today is to answer and be a, a spokes, a voice for those who are um, in discriminated against with injustice and those who can't speak for themselves. And this is a moral challenge to our practice. And if the Dharma is going to fulfill its complete potential, we have to see that this is just as important as sitting and finding peace inside of us on the cushion. And this is from a uh, wonderful Tibetan teacher. I quoted him a few days earlier, Nyosho Kempo, who says, we are not practicing for ourselves alone. Since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others, what's called bodhicitta, whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others 
through contact with this good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas in training, strive to embody. <clears throat> so here it is, in the moment that you are not grasping at the pleasant, that you are rather appreciating, allowing, but learning to be here and not get into that contracted, contracted response, you are learning that relinquishment, that letting go, that renunciation that the Buddha spoke of as being a, a key uh, to, to deepening our practice. And you're moving from the second noble truth, the cause of suffering attachment to the third noble truth, the end of suffering, letting go, and even more than that, expressing your compassion. Every single moment, just something to think about. Oh, here's a pleasant moment. Ah, don't miss it. You don't want to miss it, but don't grasp at it because it goes. It comes and it goes. Okay. So this is the first. The second, non-hatred or non-aversion. Every single moment that there's an unpleasant Vedna, when you are willing to open to it with clarity and um, non-aversion, non-reaction, you are learning to have a friendly relationship to the moment. Non-aversion, put more positively, is love loving kindness. And I, I just want to say, as I'm, I'm starting this, that um, uh, as, as Trudy has some pictures of Ramdas uh, behind, behind her, you know, I've got my picture of Ramdas right here, uh, that the quality, that heart quality of, of love is really the essence of of practice and i was practicing in in my early years um i kind of had a um a, a, what an ambivalence a question an issue in my life about whether i was a i was a buddhist or a bhakta somebody brought this up in in one of the uh the talks in one of the small groups because Be Here Now, I think I mentioned, really changed my life. But there was, mm, uh, there was a cleanliness and a, a clarity about Buddha Dharma once I started practicing that really spoke to me. And uh, for a while, I uh, was going back and forth, and uh, I decided, uh, Joseph Goldstein had told me that, that Ramdas was running a small class by invitation only in New York. And he thought maybe I, I, I'd, I'd like to do that because he knew that's, uh, that was something that was important to me. And, you know, within that class with, the, with the, uh, the devotional elements is a lot of chanting and uh, doing mala beads and Sri Ram, J Ram and things like that. And, Although I was inspired by the energy, 
it didn't seem quite as clear and clean as just sitting here in the solemn quiet of, of, uh, of the Dharma, of Buddha Dharma. And I spent the better part of a year going back and forth. Am I a bhakta? Am I a Buddhist? Back and forth. And Ramdas would say, you know, don't worry, your path will pick you. You don't have to worry about picking your path. But one day, this is towards the end of, of the year, it dawned on me, Maharaja Neem Karoli Baba's uh, main instructions were to love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And one day it hit me that non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion were exactly the same thing, just in a, a different order. Non-greed, serve everyone. Non-hatred, love everyone. Non-delusion, remember God. So it made, it was a great relief. And I thought, oh, I don't have to choose which one is the real Dharma. There's a, a line from uh, the third Zen patriarch, this beautiful piece of wisdom. He says, there's one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. So if you're wondering, mm, what, what's, what's my path? What's my path? You take a look and see what opens your heart and is aligned with the truth. So getting back to now non-hatred or the heart of love. We, we know for ourselves how painful it is when we're caught in anger and aversion or hatred even though it's part of being human, it's painful. And we can feel justified and righteous in our anger. Uh, and sometimes it's important to motivate us to do, to get into action. But underneath the anger is usually something much softer, hurt, fear, sadness, or feeling feeling threatened um, and there's something underneath that we need to go underneath, particularly in these times when there's so much hatred. As the, the Buddha said, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. Or as Martin Luther King Jr. said, you have no moral authority over anyone who can feel your underlying contempt. You have no moral authority over anyone who can feel your underlying contempt. And of course, it's important to, um, to do what we can to make a difference in this world and have what's called fierce compassion, not Oh, it's cool. I'll just, I'll just let it go. No, you have to be really fierce and engaged in these, these times, but not with hatred in your heart because hatred just poisons us. And uh, there's an image that the Buddha gives of picking up a, a hot coal when you're really angry and you want to hurt someone or you have it in for them, picking up a hot coal thinking, 
that you want to throw and hurt them, not realizing you're the one that's getting burned when you pick it up. Or the other images, like drinking poison and hoping the other person's going to get sick. You are the one that's, that's suffering if you're caught up in hatred. So in the moment that you can meet the unpleasant with friendliness, with meta, not that you like it. This is not, oh, this is so wonderful, my pain in my knee, but just not add on the reaction of hatred on top of it. Oh, I hate my knee. Your knee doesn't deserve your animosity. It needs your healing. If you know anything about healing, it responds to love, not to anger. And so be careful. It's starting it with yourself to not be angry at all of these places inside of us. There's a line I love from, uh, who was it? Robert Bly. He said, um, every part of our personality that we do not learn to love and embrace will become hostile to us. You hate your anger, you're just going to get more angry at it. You hate your loneliness or your sadness, you're forgetting your humanity and not embracing that part of yourself. So it starts, I want to go through a few different, a few different dimensions of this non-hatred or heart of metta and kindness. It starts with ourself. It's got to start with ourself. Uh, even though it might be a lifelong journey of learning that, but the, the more we can open up and see all of the whole package of being human and not push anything in the way, of, in the way the more all of our beautiful qualities shine through. So in the metta practice, as you saw, we start with our ourself. I, I hope you are checking out those metta uh, practices that I um, that I offered for you to do in the evening. It starts with loving kindness for ourself. Now this is easier said than done, uh, if you're like most people, but it can be practiced. And maybe uh, one thing I want to share with you is a practice that was a very powerful one for me in learning to start to get who I was. It was in a, a long, a longer retreat. Um, I was, I took a six week period of practice and I was just going to be doing um, the Brahma Vihara practices, starting with loving kindness and then compassion and then sympathetic joy and then equanimity for six weeks. But the first week when you do it, you cut, you focus a lot on the, the metta first before you move on to the other three. And the first week, as I was uh, instructed to do, was doing metta for yourself. So there I was doing it and saying phrases, you know, may I be, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be peaceful. And it was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. It was... I wasn't giving myself a hard time. I could see that there was some progress from when I first started this. 
But after about three days, somebody came to my mind. You're doing this from the time you wake up until the time you go to bed. Your bed is safe, healthy, happy, peaceful. And somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. I didn't know why, but I knew this person, there was no doubt that this person loved me. And I said to myself, this would be so much easier if I could just see what they see. And then I magically connected the dots and I asked myself, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me so much? And that's when I hit upon this particular way of doing metta that I'd, I'd like to offer to you right now. And I was thinking about doing this. Um, usually I do it and it's kind of an inner uh, internal experience. But here, while you are on Zoom and you're seeing not only everybody else's picture, but you're seeing yourself too. We can do it uh, in, uh, in a direct way. So this is what I did. Uh, first, I would like you to close your eyes just to start. You might sit up if you can. If you have some physical uh, challenge, then just stay where you are. But if you sit up and bring to mind someone who you have... Um, a really warm, loving connection with. It can be a friend. It can be someone close to you. It can be your pet, or your dog, or your cat. Just anyone, and it can be somebody from your past, if there is nobody who comes to mind right now. Just somebody who you've had some warm, um, sweet connection with. And as you do, just get in touch with that flow that you share, which is kind of unique. Two people just have, they make a unique connection and it's a, it's a unique one that you don't have with anybody else. And just enjoy that for a few moments. You can, don't miss it, just enjoy. Ah. And now imagine inhabiting that person's reality. Just imagine being that person and see through their eyes who they see when they're with their dear friend. Why do they enjoy you? And that includes your, your dog or your cat as well, if that's who you've picked. Notice the qualities that touch them about you. Maybe your kindness or your playfulness or your caring or your creativity. Notice all of it and just the essence of who you are. Let it be seen. See who they see. And from their perspective, just get in touch with what they would wish for you 
they probably would wish for you to be happy and for you to see all those beautiful qualities that they see. You might wish yourself well from their perspective, just as they would. Oh, yes. Oh, may you be happy and see all your goodness the way I see it. Drink yourself in. Okay, and now let your consciousness float back so it's right inside your own body. And if you'd like, you can open your eyes and look at your image. Or if you prefer to stay inside, either way, but take a good look at this person there and look with that same perspective that your friend saw and just wish yourself well. I, I find it helpful to do mirror practice a lot. I recommend this a lot. See who you are underneath whatever re reactions that say, oh, there's that, there's that. Take a good look and see if you can see the goodness right in there that wants to be expressed, that wants to be shared. And just send yourself those kinds of thoughts, either first person or second person. May you see all the goodness inside. May you be happy, or may I, either way. And just take a look. See what everybody else sees. And if you can even just get a little glimpse, that's good enough. That's a start. Okay, if you like, you can open your eyes. The more you can see that in yourself, the more it comes out unobstructedly. And the interesting thing is, mm, everybody else can see it except us. We're usually the last ones to see because we're looking at the flaws and thinking, oh, if they knew what was going on inside. But you're missing what everybody else sees that just shines out of you. When I had that experience and really... Uh, got myself in a new way. It was a, it was a turning point in my life, actually. But it wasn't like I, I am the greatest holy person, some amazing human being. It was, you know, you're a decent guy. That was it. That was all I needed to see. You're really a good guy. Oh, my goodness. So... Why don't you start seeing what everybody else sees? And I often say, just imagine this. Suppose you met somebody who um, liked your sense of humor, um, understood your take on things, liked your taste, and really got you, who really understood you. How would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Wouldn't it be great? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. Only one. 
why not take a look and see, oh my goodness, if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be saying, wow, where have you been all my life? What a neat human being. So it starts with yourself. And then as you are more able to see your own goodness and you let that shine through, then you start to uh, more and more um, practice seeing all the goodness in everyone around. The, the quality of metta, of that connection, of being there with others and just tuning into their goodness. Not that you want to pretend all the other stuff. You want to be really um, careful and not put yourself in harm's way because many people are, are not in touch with their own goodness. But a main practice of mine, which I got from Neem Karoli Baba, was keep looking for the good. Because the more you look for it, the more you will bring it out, the more you'll draw it out of others. It's like if you're around somebody and you sense that they're looking at all your flaws and they're judging you, how do you feel? Flawed, small, or defensive. It's so different when you're around somebody who you know is tuning into all your beautiful qualities. How do you feel? You feel relaxed, you feel beautiful. You feel good about being who you are. You have that power to draw that right out of others. And when somebody is not mm, so easily seen in that way, uh, then there's the next step in the metta practice, which is um, trying to understand their reality. And I'll share with you um, a very simple teaching that I got from a 13-year-old girl from Trinidad a number of years ago. My wife and I were invited to go to Trinidad and uh, teach some educators there. Um, so, and the person who invited us had a really um, amazing um, young woman, wise beyond her years. She must be in her early 20s now. And uh, she said she was working on an invention that she thought might lead to world peace. And I said, oh yeah, I'm interested. And she said, it's called the perspective helmet. You put it on, and as soon as you put it on, you can understand the perspective of the person that you're speaking to. I said, if you can figure out how to get that done, I'll invest in that. I think you're on to something. It's so simple to put on your perspective helmet and just see everybody's reality makes sense to them, no matter how strange or bizarre it is because of causes, because of conditions, because of um, experiences, because of genetics, because of countless factors. We all make sense to us. And we're walking around with the reality probably, if everybody saw it like I see it, this would be so much better world. Well, unfortunately, everybody else is walking around with that same idea. 
the Dalai Lama has this teaching, he says, if somebody is upsetting you, chances are most of the time, they're not trying to, to hurt you. It's just that their internal reality is intersecting with your internal reality in a way that doesn't match up with your expectations. Now, it's true that sometimes people are um, hurtful, but that's because of their own confusion and their own ignorance. And so we want to be really careful and, and protective and have healthy boundaries, but still not meet it with hatred, just meet it with compassion and understanding. So uh, loving kindness in relationship to others and putting on our perspective helmet. Another level that I'd like to talk about is beyond the personal and how we feel um, about something beyond the personal, opening our hearts in a profound way. And that's in relationship to our um, spiritual life. And I go back to, to that uh, first encounter with Ram Dass, this is in 1974, where I learned a very profound lesson. Uh, I had been practicing for a couple of years, but this is in, yeah, in 74, and, uh, no, it was in 75 after I went to, um, to New York to see if, if I could be in this, uh, this class that he was doing. And um, he knew that I was coming from a Buddhist perspective, and this is going to be a devotional scene. And uh, so he, we, we were kind of seeing if it, was, if it was going to be a good fit. There were about 30, 35 people in this invitation-only class. And he said, um, well, let me ask you, I, I want to ask you a few questions. This is, you know, a, a bhakti, um, bhakti class, a bhakti practice that we do here. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure. Let's see how it, how it fits. And he said, I want, I want to ask you first, um, how do you feel about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And I said, mm, I like Jesus. But I don't know if I love Jesus. Like he's saying, do you love Jesus? And I said, mm, I, I like Jesus. I think his teachings are brilliant, but I don't have that same open-hearted surrender that I sense that maybe you, you'd like me to have. And he said, okay. He said, well, how about Krishna? We do a lot of chanting, Hare Krishna. Do you love Krishna? And again, I said, well, I like Krishna. The embodiment of celebration and, uh, and, and joy. Um, I don't know if I love Krishna. He said, okay, well, let me ask you, um, how about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, Ramdas, um, I, I was raised Jewish, in Jewish tradition, and I don't know uh, whether it was a, 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 child, uh, a, a child's Bible book or what, but when I think of God, the word God, I think of this 
very powerful man, man with a beard and a book and a pen saying, you're going to have a good day and you're not going to have a good day. And so rather than loving God, it actually put the fear of God in my heart. Um, so I don't know if I, if I, I can say I love God, but when I think of the word God or hear the word God, I translate it as the Dharma, which to me is the perfection of everything, the mystery, that which cannot be named. I'm looking at Maharaji and Radhas right now. So and, and so when I think of, of the Dharma, uh, that's very different, the perfection of it all. And then he said, well, um, do you love the Dharma? And I said, oh yeah, absolutely. He said, you sure? And I said, absolutely. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? And I said, no. And he said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, just say it. Say, I love you, Dharma. I said, really? He said, yeah, just say it. I'll say it with you, he said. You just start. And I, I felt completely stupid, but I started saying, I love you, Dharma. And he followed. He said, I love you, Dharma. He said, keep on going. I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said it back. And uh, about the third or fourth time, I just, I really felt it. Tears started coming down my face, at which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. Okay, you can come into this class, which I did. And it was a really important moment for me, particularly as a Buddhist in my mind by then, that we love the Dharma, whether you call it the Dharma or God or Jesus or the truth or the mystery, there's something in us, there's something in every one of you, as I'm looking at all of you now, at least on this page, that has heard a deep calling that is moved towards goodness. And you can't ignore that call. You wouldn't be on this retreat if you did. And that's where I was talking about those spiritual qualities that putting your heart upon that sadha is so important. It gives it juice. It gives it a heart connection. And so besides that non-hatred, non-aversion being, I, uh, I love myself and others. And then there's something beyond this form that loves the Dharma. But even then, there's a deeper kind of love, which brings us to the third of these roots of happiness. That is non-delusion. Because in loving the Dharma, it's still me loving the Dharma. And there's a dualistic element in that. I'm just thinking about um, in uh, the Ramayana Hanuman, 
says, who is a servant of, of Ram, he worships Ram and he serves him, the, the monkey god. Hanuman says, when I, when I forget who I am, I serve you. When I remember who I am, you and I are one. And so even to get beyond that dualistic, as beautiful as it is, that devotional, to see you are the Dharma. And this leads us to that non-delusion. And in non-delusion, we touch a little bit more on the magic of awareness. As I said the other, the other day, um, that mm, three aspects, three characteristics are the hallmark of wisdom in those five faculties. That is seeing the impermanent nature of reality, seeing how grasping at the, that impermanent nature, anything that is changing when you're grasping at it is a setup for suffering, dukkha. And to see that you too are this impermanent flow of life. Remember when I asked you to look at yourself like a verb instead of a noun, that you are this flow of life that life has manifested in you. And there's not only this physical form and this mental, um, uh, these mental formations and thoughts and feelings, but there's an awareness also that knows. There's an awareness that you are imbued with. Even that isn't you, but it shines through you as you're looking at the screen, if your eyes are working, just take a look at the screen. Can you not see the forms in front of you? Can you turn off that awareness? If, you are, if your ears are functioning, your organs are functioning, and you're hearing these words, can you not hear these words? You can't turn it off. You have awareness just shining through you. And that awareness is, as I said uh, earlier, it is vast without boundaries. It is wakeful and conscious. And its nature is ceaselessly responsive. There's the love that naturally shines through you. That's the nature of awareness, but we don't see it, we miss it, and we are lost in, uh, in forms. Oh, that's a pretty water bottle. Oh, that's a, an interesting, and we miss the awareness that is seeing it all, that is pure and free, and is, um, is the, 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 expression of our pure nature. I wanted to read to you a, a favorite passage of mine from, again, another Tibetan. Uh, this is from the Flight of the Garuda about the nature of this awareness. Mm. Shapkar. Mm. Um, 
Listen, O fortunate heart children. I will now sing the song about the view entitled The Flight of the Garuda. Listen carefully, fortunate children of my heart. In both samsara and nirvana, samsara is the physical plane of the, the cycles of, of suffering and nirvana. The renown of the enlightened state is widely heard like thunder throughout the sky. Mm. As this always remains within the minds of beings of all realms, how amazing that one is never separate from it for even an instant. Not knowing that this state, this pure awareness, this true nature, the divine within you, not knowing that this state is within what oneself, how amazing that one searches for it everywhere. Although it is clearly manifest like the radiant disk of the sun, how amazing that so few see it. Having no father or mother, one's mind is the true Buddha, one's awakened heart or bodhicitta is the true Buddha. How amazing that it knows neither birth nor death, no matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced, how amazing that it is never impaired or improved, even in the slightest. How amazing that without being fabricated, without being created, this mind or this Buddha heart, which is unborn and primordially pure, is spontaneously present from the beginning. This self-awareness is naturally free from the very first. How amazing that it is liberated by just resting at ease in whatever happens. How amazing that there you are, you know, the kingdom of God is within, as it's said in, in another paradigm, your Buddha nature, the Christ within, the still small voice within, the God within, how could it be excluded from you? Everything else is imbued with it. How amazing. The magic of awareness is when we just stop and try to figure things out and rest, we get into contact with this pure heart this goodness, this love, this pure awareness that is who we are. And you can't really say, I mean, you could, but it doesn't really make sense to say, my unconditional love is better than your unconditional love. My pure awareness is better than yours. It's just awareness shining through us. So I'll just close with this, another little poem about awareness from, again, one of my, my favorite Dharma poet, Dana Falls. She says, settle in the here and now, 
reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. I'll read it one more time. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. And that's what we're doing here getting back to the original transforming suffering into happiness. In every moment that we're mindful, in every moment that we're not grasping at the pleasant, that we're not pushing away in aversion to the unpleasant, and not being deluded in thinking that I'm separate, but seeing the truth of who we really are, wisdom, every single moment that we're mindful, we are cultivating non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, love, generosity of spirit, remembering who we are, wisdom. And that's how we're transforming suffering into happiness. So let's just sit for a moment, let the world settle.
Thank you for your attention. And I hope this evening is, uh, is one where you can enjoy the moments or open up to them however they are without grasping or pushing away, but really being present for your life. And you might just start seeing who you really are without even trying. So I don't know, let's see if there's any, oh yeah, uh, there was that announcement. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.